and welcome back. We are jumping into chapter three of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Chapter three. Papa came home at five o'clock. By that time, the horse and wagon had been locked up in Faber's stable. Francie had finished her book and her candy and had noted how pale and thin the late afternoon sun was on the worn fence boards. She held the sun-warmed, wind-freshened pillow to her cheek a moment before she replaced it on her cot. Papa came in singing his favorite ballad, Molly Malone. He always sang it coming up the stairs so that everyone would know he was home. In Dublin's fair city, the girls are so pretty, t'was there that I first met. Francie, smiling happily, had the door open before he could sing the next line. Where's your mother, he asked. He always asked that when he came in. She went to the show with Sissy. Oh, he sounded disappointed. He was always disappointed if Katie wasn't there. I work at Clomber's tonight, big wedding party. He brushed his derby with his coat sleeve before he hung it up. Waiting or singing, Francie asked. Both. Have I got a clean waiter's apron, Francie? There's one clean, but not ironed. I'll iron it for you. She set up the ironing board on two chairs and put the iron to heat. She got a square of thick, wrinkled duck material with linen tape ties and sprinkled it. While she waited for the iron to get hot, she heated the coffee and poured him a cup. He drank it and ate the sugar bun that they had saved for him. He was very happy because he had a job that night and because it was a nice day. A day like this is like somebody giving you a present, he said. Yes, Papa. Isn't hot coffee a wonderful thing? How did people get along before it was invented? I like the way it smells. Where did you buy these buns? Winklers, why? They make them better every day. There's some Jewbread left, a piece. Fine. He took the slice of bread and turned it over. The Union sticker was on that piece. Good bread, well made by Union bakers. He pulled the sticker off. A thought struck him. The Union label on my apron. It's right here, sewn in the seam. I'll iron it out. That label is like an ornament, he explained. Like a rose that you wear. Look at my waiter's Union button. The pale green and white button was fastened on his lapel. He polished it with his sleeve. Before I joined the Union, the bosses paid me what they felt like. Sometimes they paid me nothing. The tips, they said, would take care of me. Some places even charged me for the privilege of working. The tips were so big, they said, that they could sell the waiting concession. Then I joined the union. Your mother shouldn't begrudge the dues. The union gets me jobs where the boss has to pay me certain wages, regardless of tips. All trades should be unionized. Yes, Papa. By now, Francie was ironing away. She loved to hear him talk. Francie thought of the Union headquarters. 
One time she had gone there to bring him an apron and car fare to go to a job. She saw him sitting with some men. He wore his tuxedo all the time. It was the only suit he had. His black derby was cocked jauntily and he was smoking a cigar. He took his hat off and threw the cigar away when he saw Francie come in. My daughter, he said proudly. The waiters looked at the thin child in her ragged dress and they exchanged glances. They were different from Johnny Nolan. They had regular waiter jobs during the week and picked up extra money on Saturday night jobs. Johnny had no regular job. He worked at one night places here and there. I want to tell you fellows, he said, that I got a couple of fine children home and a pretty wife, and I want to tell you that I'm not good enough for them. Take it easy, said a friend, and patted him on the shoulder. Francie overheard two men outside the group talking about her father. The short man said, I want you to hear this fellow talk about his wife and his kids. It's rich. He's a funny duck. He brings his wages home to his wife, but keeps his tips for booze. He's got a funny arrangement at McGarrity's. He turns all his tips over to him, and McGarrity supplies him with drinks. He don't know whether McGarrity owes him money or whether he owes McGarrity. The system must work out pretty good for him, though. He's always carrying a load. The men walked away. There was a pain around Francie's heart, but when she saw how the men standing around her father liked him, how they smiled and laughed at what he said, and how eagerly they listened to him, the pain lessened. Those two men were exceptions. She knew that everyone loved her father. Yes, everyone loved Johnny Nolan. He was a sweet singer of sweet songs. Since the beginning of time, everyone, especially the Irish, had loved and cared for the singer in their midst. His brother waiters really loved him. The men he worked for loved him. His wife and children loved him. He was still gay and young and handsome. His wife had not turned bitter against him and his children did not know that they were supposed to be ashamed of him. Francie pulled her thoughts away from that day when she had visited the Union headquarters. She listened to her father again. He was reminiscing. Take me, I'm nobody. Placidly, he lit up a nickel cigar. My folks came over from Ireland the year the potatoes gave out. Fellow ran a steamship company, said he'd take my father to America. Had a job waiting for him, said he'd take the boat fare from his wages. So my father and mother came over. My father was like me, never held the one job long. He smoked in silence for a while. Francie ironed quietly. She knew that he was just thinking out loud. He did not expect her to understand. He just wanted someone to listen to him. He said practically the same things every Saturday. The rest of the week, when he was drinking, he would come and go and say little. But today was Saturday. It was his day to talk. My folks never knew how to read or write. I only got to the sixth grade myself. Had to leave school when the old man died. You kids are lucky. I'm going to see to it that you get through school. Yes, Papa. I was a boy of twelve then. 
I sang in saloons for the drunks and they threw pennies at me. Then I started working around saloons and restaurants, waiting on people. He was quiet a while with his thoughts. I always wanted to be a real singer, the kind that comes out on the stage all dressed up. But I didn't have no education, and I didn't know the first way about how to start in being a stage singer. Mind your job, my mother told me. You don't know how lucky you are to have work, she said. So I drifted into this singing waiter business. It's not steady work. I'd be better off if I was just a plain waiter. That's why I drink, he finished up, illogically. She looked up at him as though she were going to ask a question, but she said nothing. I drink because I don't stand a chance and I know it. I couldn't drive a truck like other men and I couldn't get on the cops with my build. I got to sling beer and sing when I just want to sing. I drink because I got responsibilities that I can't handle. There was another long pause. Then he whispered, I am not a happy man. I got a wife and children and I don't happen to be a hard-working man. I never wanted a family. Again, that hurt around Francie's heart. He didn't want her or Neely. What does a man like me want a family for? But I fell in love with Katie Romilly. Oh, I'm not blaming your mother, he said quickly. If it hadn't been her, it would have been Hildy O'Dare. You know, I think your mother is still jealous of her. But when I met Katie, I said to Hildy, you go your way and I'll go mine. So I married your mother. We had children. Your mother is a good woman, Francie. Don't you ever forget that. Francie knew that Mama was a good woman. She knew, and Papa said so. Then why did she like her father better than her mother? Why did she? Papa was no good. He said so himself, but she liked Papa better. Yes, your mother works hard. I love my wife and I love my children. Francie was happy again. But shouldn't a man have a better life? Maybe someday it will be that the unions will arrange for a man to work and to have time for himself too. But that won't be in my time. Now it's work hard all the time or be a bum. No in between. When I die, nobody will remember me for long. No one will say, he was a man who loved his family and believed in the union. All they will say is, too bad, but he was nothing but a drunk no matter which way you look at it. Yes, they'll say that. The room was very quiet. Johnny Nolan threw his half-smoked cigar out of the unscreened window with a bitter gesture. He had a premonition that he was running his life out too fast. He looked at the little girl ironing away so quietly with her head bent over the board, and he was stabbed by that soft sadness on the child's thin face. Listen! He went to her and put an arm around her thin shoulders. If I get a lot of tips tonight, I'll put the money on a good horse that I know is running Monday. I'll put a couple hundred dollars on him and win ten. 
Then I'll put ten on another horse I know and win a hundred. If I use my head and have any kind of luck at all, I'll run it up to five hundred. Pipe dreams, he thought to himself, even while he was telling her about his dream winnings. But oh, how wonderful, he thought, if everything you talked about could come true. He went on talking. Then do you know what I'm going to do, prima donna? Francie smiled happily, pleased at his using the nickname he had given her when, as a baby, he swore that her crying was as varied and as tuneful as an opera singer's range. No, what are you going to do? I'm going to take you on a trip. Just you and me, prima donna. We'll go way down south where the cotton blossoms blow. He was delighted with the sentence. He said it again. Down where the cotton blossoms blow. Then he remembered that the sentence was a line in a song that he knew. He jammed his hands in his pockets, whistled, and started to do a waltz clog like Pat Rooney. Then he went into the song. A field of snowy white, hear the darky singing soft and low. I long there to be, for someone waits for me, down where the cotton blossoms blow. Francie kissed his cheek softly. Oh, Papa, I love you so much, she whispered. He held her tight, again the stab wound feeling. Oh God, oh God, he repeated to himself in almost unendurable agony. What a hell of a father I am. But when he spoke to her again, it was quietly enough. All this isn't getting my apron ironed though. It's all done, Papa. She folded it into a careful square. Is there any money in the house, baby? She looked into the cracked cup on the shelf. A nickel and some pennies. Would you take seven cents and go out and get me a dicky and a paper collar? Francie went over to the dry goods store to get her father's Saturday night linen. A dicky was a shirt front made of stiffly starched muslin. It fastened around the neck with a collar button and the vest held it in place. It was used instead of a shirt. It was worn once and then thrown away. A paper collar was not exactly made out of paper. It was called that to differentiate it from a celluloid collar, which was what poor men wore because it could be laundered simply by being wiped with a wet rag. A paper collar was made out of thin cambric stiffly starched. It could be used only once. When Francie got back, Papa had shaved, wetted his hair down, shined his shoes, and put on a clean undershirt. It was unironed and had a big hole in the back, but it smelled nice and clean. He stood on a chair and took down a little box from the top cupboard shelf. It contained the pearl studs that Katie had given him for a wedding present. They had cost her a month's salary. Johnny was very proud of them. No matter how hard up the Nolans were, the studs were never pawned. Francie helped him to put the studs in the dicky. He fastened the wing collar on with a golden collar button, a present that Hildy O'Dare had given him before he had become engaged to Katie. He wouldn't part with that either. His tie was a piece of heavy black silk and he tied an expert bow with it. 
Other waiters wore ready-made bows attached to elastics, but not Johnny Nolan. Other waiters wore soiled white shirts or clean shirts indifferently ironed and celluloid collars, but not Johnny. His linen was immaculate, if temporary. He was dressed at last. His wavy blonde hair gleamed and he smelled clean and fresh from washing and shaving. He put his coat on and buttoned it up jauntily. The satin lapels of the tuxedo were threadbare, but who would look at that when the suit fitted him so beautifully and the crease in his trousers was so perfect? Francie looked at his well-polished black shoes and noticed how the cuffless trousers came down in the back over the heel and what a nice break they made across his instep. No other father's pants hung just that way. Francie was proud of her father. She wrapped up his ironed apron carefully in a piece of clean paper saved for that purpose. She walked with him to the trolley car. Women smiled at him until they noticed the little girl clinging to his hand. Johnny looked like a handsome, devil-may-care Irish boy instead of the husband of a scrubwoman and the father of two children who were always hungry. They passed Gabriel's hardware store and stopped to look at the skates in the window. Mama never had time to do this. Papa talked as though he would buy Francie a pair someday. They walked to the corner. When a Graham Avenue trolley came along, he swung up onto the platform, suiting his rhythm to the car slowing down. As the car started up again, he stood on the black back platform, holding onto the bar while he leaned way out to wave to Francie. No man had ever looked so gallant as her father, she thought. <laughs>